Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Jason. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for inviting me because I think, uh, as you've already indicated in your introductory remarks, we're going to cover the waterfront on this so that people, hopefully after we're finished, have a better appreciation, understanding of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, its place within our constitutional framework, and why it's so important. Well, normally I ask my guests to introduce themselves. You could do a quick one, but you are Honorable Brian Peckford, so you don't have to do too much. But if you don't mind, for the for the two or three people out there that may not know who you are, who are you, Mr. Peckford? Yes, exactly. No no problem. And I, I think you're very uh, wise to, to do that. Uh, yeah. Um, my name is uh, Brian Peckford, and uh, I was born and raised and educated and worked uh, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I got involved in politics in 1979. Um, well, I got involved in politics, uh, elected politics in 1972. I had graduated from Memorial University of Newfoundland and became a high school teacher in rural Newfoundland. And so uh, after I finished uh, <clears throat> university, I did have some experience in what you call um, politics in the sense of the university. I ran for student council at the university, mm -hmm. became a member of the student council at Memorial University. I, before that, in our little local high school, I had uh, organized the first uh, student council at that school, for example. And so uh, one can say that I was naturally attracted to to get involved in things and try to make things happen. If that meant I became leader of it, so be it. Um, mm -hmm. and, but, uh, so I, I, I've been doing that sort of all my life. And uh, I was the one to speak up in class when I was five, you know, in grade five or grade four and so on. So I come by it naturally. And as you know, from a lot of Newfoundlanders, most Newfoundlanders have no trouble speaking. They, they, mm -hmm. they, they, they speak a lot. And, uh, and there's lots of people on the national scene as well as in the various provinces uh, from Newfoundland who <laughs> completely give that example some validity. And so then I went to university and I was involved with the student politics there. I was involved with the debating society there and uh, debated the people from across the country, blah, blah, blah. Went out teaching school for five years and got involved in politics and ran and won and became the first MLA of the Conservative Party in that riding ever. Oh, wow. From so normally liberal? From 1832 to 1972, that riding was liberal. Wow, good job. I was the first, I was the last riding in Newfoundland not to have ever gone anything but liberal. So I was the one who broke the historic uh, allegiance to the Liberal Party in northeast in Newfoundland, and this was in northeastern Newfoundland, and so I became an MLA, and then uh, very quickly, within a few months, I was um, appointed to be an, an assistant in the premier's office, and had two or three roles to play there, and then I was appointed minister, and I became a minister of various departments from '72 to '79, and then 1979, the then premier decided to resign. I ran for the leadership, and out of a collection of eight or nine or ten candidates on the third ballot i became the leader automatically premier of the province of Newfoundland, labrador in march 1979 and served as the premier until march 1989 10 years, ten years. almost almost to the day 10 years to the month i couldn't get the exact day 
uh, for when I was going to make the announcement, but it was in the same month. So I was 10 years, one decade, Premier of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I resigned and then went out into private business. My wife and I formed our own consulting company and we ran that ourselves until I resigned in 2000. I sort of retired in 2001 and uh, was living comfortably, <laughs> or well, I say, uh, uh, relaxingly until, um, and did some speeches across the country, wrote some letters to an editor, wrote some essays and so on. I'm always interested in writing and reading and um, gradually re retired even from that to, to a large degree, except still expressing my views on things right. until this, um, this silly uh, manufactured pandemic came around, which gave a whole bunch of people who wanted to have more and more power the opportunity to use a manufactured health emergency to access more and more power and to reduce the uh, role of the individual in our society. That's when mm -hmm. the, uh, the flags went up and the lights went on and here I was back into the fray because realizing that now I was one of the few members, first ministers left alive who helped negotiate and sign. My name is on this document. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, this whole question of individual rights and freedoms was crucial uh, to formulating a complete democracy in our nation. Um, we argued about it for decades um, because here was the United States of America formed in 1776 and had a Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1790. That wasn't too many years afterwards. Whereas in our case, we formed our, our nation in 1867 and never had a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms until 1981, brought into law in 1982. There's good historic cultural reasons for that because we came out of a British tradition, whereas mm -hmm. the Americans uh, rejected the British tradition way of forming governments went to a more Republican form of government. So people should understand right from the start that in putting this into historical perspective, there is legitimacy in the argument that uh, it took us longer because we came out of a completely different governmental governance culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and whilst we were on a, a continent where the largest country had gone differently, and was able to litigate and argue for individual rights from a written document. Ours was based upon the common law. The right. problem with that, of course, in common law is that lawyers and, and those who are going to argue on your behalf, given that it was uh, unwritten law and was set by precedent out of common law, there are many arguments for and against your particular position through the decades right, of common law whereby it wouldn't be fixed more certain, it would be less certain of you getting the kind of result which you thought you legitimately had in advancing your point. And so over the years, many attempts were tried, over 10, 10 attempts were tried over the years in the 1900s to effectively bring in, uh, first of all, have our all the power in Canada, not just some of the power in Canada, and being able to amend our Constitution again, up until 1981, to amend 
our BNA Act of 1867, which was the founding document for Canada, we had to go back to London and have it ratified by them. And uh, number one, number two, we had to decide before we did that on how in the future we would change it if we brought it to Canada and had to change it. And that was a big stumbling block. Many arguments and conferences over trying to decide on how we would change our constitution once we had the power to do so. And that happened in 1981. That's why it's called patriation. Patriot. Patriation means patriating or bringing bring the constitution from London to Ottawa. Okay. Mm. It's not repatriation, it's patriation, okay? Many people say repatriation, but it's not. It's uh, patriation. We patriated our constitution to Canada by bringing in powers which allowed us to have control over amending and changing our own constitution without any more reference to Got the so-called mother country, UK. And that's what we did in 1981, but at the same time, made other changes to the constitution adding things on amending other things so what happened in 81 and 82 when the charter of rights and freedoms came in it was a package it wasn't just a charter of rights and freedoms that we're going to talk about today and which everybody gets excited about either for or against mm. it was because when you open for the first time really since 1867 this 1867 document and add and subtract to or bring in a whole new act which we did 1982 act then obviously the various parties involved in canada meaning the provinces and the federal government were going to try to seek other changes that they've been aggravating and arguing for for many years and we're not able to right. do it because we didn't have our own right constitution and so this was a package that happened in 81-82, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, plus Aboriginals, uh, Indigenous rights, which had not been part of the Constitution. And so, and even defining who was an Indigenous person. Right. right? It was the Indian, right? And mm -hmm. the Métis, and the Inuit. That was never defined before. There was no constitutional definition of who was an indigenous person. This did it for the first time in our history. So that was another thing that had to be that all, you know, required number of provinces had to agree to that. Right? And so we were negotiating individual rights with indigenous rights, with natural resource rights, with getting an amending formula, right? with um, minority education rights, right? uh, uh, regional disparity and so on. All of these were part of what that package was in 1981. And so it was complicated and took 17 months for, for it to happen. And in the middle of that 17 months, people must understand, the federal government left the table and said, we can't, can't do this, this can't be done. That's Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father of Justin Trudeau. He left mm -hmm. the table because he said, we can't do it. These warring provinces, these, these little chieftains, these little municipalities called provinces, uh, are making to the, so I'm going to do it on my own. So he brought in his own package to the House of Commons and had it passed and was going to go to London to get it ratified when the provinces like Alberta and Newfoundland in particular and Saskatchewan and British Columbia uh, and New Brunswick, Nova Scotia and PEI said no and Quebec said no. Uh, sorry, not New Brunswick. And the Brunswick was 
Ontario and New Brunswick stayed with the federal government and said they can do this. We took the federal oh, well. government court and said, you don't have the constitutional power to do this. We brought it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And by that time, the federal government and Pierre and Trudeau realized that they had a fight on their hands and this was going to be very difficult. And the tide was turning against this, his unilateral action. So he decided, which he had the power to do, the cabinet of Canada had the power to do, to refer at the same time as we were. So the Supreme Court put it all into one lump. The Canada referring it to see whether they had the constitutional power to do it. Mm -hmm. Us already through our own courts, up to the Supreme Court of Canada, saying uh, you did not. And some of the local provincial courts agreeing with us all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So on September 1981, the and this is extremely important in understanding. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, and once again, the federal government and a whole bunch of people in Canada want to ignore this. Somehow this Trudeau uh, magic has to continue, even if it's mythology, you know, full of myth and mythological and not true. And so the Supreme Court of Canada in September 1981 ruled that what the federal government was trying to do with the support of Ontario under Brunswick was unconstitutional. That's what led Trudeau back to the table in November, where we finally negotiated the Patriation Agreement and then what became the 1982 Constitution Act in which the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is located. Wow. Okay, that's a lot to take in right away, but I did not know, and maybe it's because we're not teaching this in history and stuff, I did not know that Trudeau challenged it and he tried to go unilateral on it and he was stopped by the Supreme Court. Can you imagine if that decision came different? That was independent. That's when we had a court because a right. lot of the people on the Supreme Court of Canada at the time were friends of Trudeau's. Uh, as you know, if you remember a bit of history, um, a lot of the press at the time as they had done with his son for so long, they elevated this man, this period, and mm. would be almost some kind of a godlike figure, and he was the constitutional expert. Well, here was a constitutional expert losing to his friends in the Supreme Court of Canada. This is how significant this is, you know? And so what you have from day one is that you had the elite outside of the Supreme Court of Canada, but the rest of the political establishment, especially in Ontario and Quebec, which was, you know, sort of running the country and is still trying to do so today, um, being defeated. This great constitutional expert, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and his unilateral action was defeated by the, his own constitutional friends on the Supreme Court of Canada. Huge victory for co confederation and not right. an authoritarian state. Or, you know, a real victory for a federal state, which is defined in the Constitution Act of 1867, and which therefore was given more momentum as a result of this decision, which led him with his tail between his legs to come back to the table. That's why I get so upset when people start talking about uh, Trudeau's charter. And I say in my, in my essay on the myths of confederation, no, it's not. His charter lost in <laughs> September 1980. Our charter won in November 1981, because he had to come back to the table and negotiate and compromise in order to get the deal we got. Wow. Okay, I did not know that. So thank you very much, Brian, for sharing that part of it. So we had a hint of what Trudeau's mindset was at back then, and maybe a little yeah. foreshadowing about what was to come later. Um, you got it. You got <laughs> yeah. It. 
Yeah, because boy, did he want to have to put up a fight, and it wasn't until he was embarrassed that he stopped doing it and had to go back to the bargaining table for sure. And, and if you read the latest stuff in the last week or two, including perhaps on your program and other such like programs, it looks like this Trudeau also has got to be embarrassed uh, down to the, the nth degree in order for him to realize that he's no longer popular in this nation, that he's no longer the person that can just wave a wand and everybody will go along with it and that there are certain procedures and governance systems in the provinces and between the provinces and among the provinces which dictate that you can't go doing this kind of stuff and that mm -hmm. notwithstanding the NDP and him having this little deal going that doesn't mean that the country is going to suddenly roll over and play dead and go along but the other point of all this stuff that we can't miss and, and it's quite likely we're going to, and I won't get a chance to mention it anymore. The provinces are also to blame as it relates to yeah. the pandemic. There, there's just as much mandate and lockdown done by the provinces as done by the federal government. So mm. whilst we need to get rid of Trudeau and bring some sense of balance back to the federal power, we also need massive changes at the provincial level in order to stop this silliness. I mean, this lady should never have died because... She didn't have the Sheila uh, Lewis, yeah, and was able to get her organ transplant in Alberta, uh, and and uh, no doubt many in the health department of Alberta are still advocating for vaccinations and the like. And so we've got a problem in every provincial capital where we need integrity and we need them to start abiding by the constitution. Now, maybe the problem is a little bit more lower level. We need to, the people who actually have the power, we need exactly. to remind the level above us who has the power and what we expect from them. Maybe there's some more demands there for accountability, transparency, and some sort of, uh, uh, not revolution, but definitely some sort of understanding of what we should and shouldn't be doing. Go back to Section 9192, really. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And But this is our problem because our schools... <laughs> There's no, nobody teaches. I, I issued my own Magna Carta over, over a year ago on the steps of the legislative building in Victoria. And one of the points in that Magna Carta was that the powers that be, we must insist that the powers that be in this country initiate in the curriculum of all the public schools of Canada a mandatory subject called civics in which students will be obligated to learn about how our country operates municipally, provincially, and federally, and how it is different or how it is the same as other democratic countries around the world. This we do not do. And in order for us to have an educated population so that the people can legitimately oppose or express their civil disobedience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they, they know what they're talking about. Right now, many people don't know what they're talking about because they've never learned about how our country came together and what the nature of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is. So for people to agitate, they must understand and legitimately understand our history so that the agitation has credibility. Do you got a good point there? This morning we were speaking to an ex-police officer from the Calgary Police Services who basically left because the charter was being violated and he wouldn't go along with the orders. And he first started by having a video saying, hey, look, I really think you should stop trampling on people's rights. Uh, what happened in Ottawa is not right. This is not what our oath says. We shouldn't be doing this. Because he made that video, he got pulled into the office, disciplined, decided to leave the police force. What I think what you just said there was super valuable is that if, 
apologies. It'll come back. It might be ceases bothering us here a little bit here. Um, but but the point was what he it said was. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it will come back. It will come back. So we'll just give it a moment. Yeah, it should come back. Uh, how's my sound there, Pat? Sound Am I good on my side? <clears throat> yeah, I think it might be both connections. So we'll just keep going there, Brian, if you can hear me. Yeah, so it might be your side there, Brian. So I'll just keep okay, going. Okay, because there's some disconnection going on. I didn't hear everything you said. Okay, no problem. So I'll just start again. Oh. So uh, this this morning's episode, we had a police officer from Calgary Police Services on, and he was one of the police officers who stood up and said, stop violating the charter, stop violating rights. What's happening in Ottawa during the convoy, that was atrocious. I can't believe we're doing that. That's not our oath. We're supposed to be doing the right thing. And he basically ended up leaving the police services over the uh, challenge of trying to stand up for the charter rights. So what you're saying there, I think, is super important because if more police officers, their commanders, and just people in general understood what the charter really represented, it wouldn't be such an argument. It would be more of a given. We all understand that those are the rights that can't be vitiated or, or trampled on. And it doesn't yeah. take one, one out of a thousand police officers to stand up. More and more of them would have already had that training and understanding. And maybe we wouldn't have seen a top-down push on it at all. Exactly. We've even seen in autocratic countries around the world that once the people, in sufficient numbers, knowing what they're talking about, oppose even an autocrat or a totalitarian regime, the regime backs down. Well, if in our case in Canada, right, where mm -hmm. we pride ourselves on being a democratic state, if there were sufficient people, either in the police force or in the army or, or, or the armed forces or in the civic society generally, mm -hmm. uh, think tanks, business leaders, union leaders, and so on, municipal politicians, and so on, we, we could change this. It's not a big deal to be able to change this through civic, proper civic disobedience, whereby we're just saying, look, <laughs> the people are the final arbiters of what kind of a nation we want. We do it usually through our parliaments provincially and through our parliament nationally. But they've been abused, and that power has been moved from the parliament uh, illegally yep. without any law being passed. It's just been gradually moving. The power has been shifting to the executive and to the judiciary, leaving the parliament and the people who created you in the beginning out of the out of the process and this is not democracy and we're going to stop it that's good <laughs> that's what i like to hear we definitely need to stop it because one of the yeah. biggest misconceptions that people have especially <clears throat> the younger generation is the government grants you the rights uh -uh. <laughs> no no <laughs> the government does not grant you the rights you're born with these rights um, exactly we we provide certain powers and, and we definitely have an agreement on certain things, but no, our, our rights are not given to us by any government. You want, you want to clarify that for us? I do so. And that's why in the first <laughs> sentence of the Charter and Rights and Freedoms, we insisted, we being the people, the provinces, the premiers at the, of the day and the prime minister, we decided that here is what, we would agree to and how we would introduce the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the individual rights and freedoms for you and me and all citizens from Tofino to Bonavista, from Iqaluit to Niagara Falls. This is what yes. we would, would agree to, and it was this. Whereas, this is the first golden words of our Charter as you and I sit here today. Whereas this country is founded upon the principles of the supremacy of God, and the rule of law, colon, 
colon. In other words, everything follows after this. Correct. I'm an English teacher, but you don't have to know much about punctuation. You know, why wasn't a period put there? Why didn't the, the farmers put a period there, a comma, a semicolon, whatever? They put a colon there deliberately because everything follows after those two concepts. Thanks. It's the supremacy in God, and that's where our rights come from. 100%. And we forgot to teach that. We really have no, forgot we forgot to teach, to teach that. that. And many people still try to ignore that. And, and everybody, then Canadians are forced, they think they're forced to go to the proclamation in the United States, the Declaration of Independence, the Council of the United States to find about, right, and the mm -hmm. rights under God. No, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do We have it right here in our own nation. We're at the first words. Whereas this country is founded on the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law in the first sentence of our charter. Now, some people say it's like decorative, and in church and state, you should separate it, so it's not really meant to be there. It's decorative, but that's not the case, correct? It's there <laughs> it's on purpose. That's why, and that's why the word whereas is so important. <laughs> it wasn't just to be a little state with this whereas. Mm -hmm. That means whereas. This is so. This is what now you can do under this whereas. <laughs> no kidding. So it's not a preamble then. It's not a preamble. Not, it is part no. of the document. It's part one. And there's no net mention of preamble in it. It's right. part one. It's the Charter of Right to Freedom, part one, and then that statement. In other words, that's the territory statement which determines the framework under which this charter is to be decided and determined and interpreted by the courts. And this is where the governments. And the courts have gone astray. Yeah, and it doesn't say belief in. Right? It doesn't say belief nope. in. So nope. that word's not in there. No. Nope. It means is. Nope. It it comes from. Whereas <laughs> this country is founded on the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Colon. And that's a statement. They can play <laughs> games with that all the lawyers can play games with that all they like. But words mean, they're the ones who keep telling us words mean something. They're there to interpret the words. But please, <laughs> Your Honor, please, yeah. Mr. Lawyer, uh, would you please go about your business and interpret the supremacy of God? And what they've done is, and Canadians have, have, have um, um, allowed themselves to uh, go along with this, they have ignored when they do a charter issue a charter case they ignore talking about it but the other thing about the charter is they have no power to ignore any part of the charter there's nowhere in the charter or the constitution that says a judge can ignore this section or that section they have to consider it all correct and by ignoring it they have violated the constitution that they're supposed to be interpreting and this is where yours truly has become a lone wolf in Canada. I wish Lahey was alive today. I wish Blakeney was alive today. I wish Bennett was alive today from British Columbia. I wish these people who were, uh, we were all together on this. Because mm -hmm. if they were alive today, I wouldn't be one person saying what I was saying. Mr. Blakeney would be saying, Mr. Lahey would be saying, Mr. Bennett would be saying. Uh, and and, and the, the former premier of, of PEI, who was around at the time, would be saying that Mr. McLean, who was the Premier of PEI at the time, and Mr. Buchanan of Nova Scotia, they would have been saying 
what I'm saying. And uh, therefore, we wouldn't have perhaps gotten as far along on, on this little illegal journey as we have. It would have been stopped long a year ago because they would have been out, uh, uh, what shall I say, strengthening this argument. And once, you know, you got four or five former first ministers, all of whom got their name on this, this document, um, then the law societies and the law schools and the judges would suddenly take their horns in, their, uh, their egotistical horns, their authoritarian horns in, and decide, oh, oh we've overstepped our authority here. We don't have the right to ignore any of this. We're supposed to be considering every charter case under the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of wish some of them were still around because uh, maybe the press would be paying attention. Maybe media would be paying attention. They wouldn't well, that's the other thing. a single and person. Exactly. And I'm completely shut out. Yeah, I've seen that. Totally shut out. Nobody will carry it. And when I send it to them, it just goes in the dustbin because they don't want their little uh, wagon upset in the same way as people in the United States didn't want to upset where the abortion issue was supposed to be in, right. in and it, right in in the United States, it wasn't supposed to be at the Supreme Court of the United States. It was supposed to be for the states to decide in their individual jurisdictions whether, in fact, abortion any any or any kind of abortion was to be allowed. It was to be decided by the people in their own parliaments in their own fifty states. That's what Roe and it upset over forty years of jurisprudence, which was decided wrong. In the same way in Canada, right now we have a like thing, 1982, this is 2023, we have over 40 years of a complete uh, misuse of our charter and that needs to be overturned and for us to go back to considering our charter and your rights and freedoms as a person, as a citizen and taxpayer of this nation, uh, to be respected under the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Now, I suspect through the abuse of it that we're going to get into here shortly, uh, this is why a lot of Canadians will look at the Charter and say it's not even worth the paper it's written on anymore. It doesn't seem to have power. It doesn't seem to be worth much anymore. And that's a misconception because it's been abused and we haven't been leveraging it correctly up to this point. So that's my and assumption on that. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and people could in the United States say our Constitution is not working because the abortion thing is about it. Well, it was just that we had elites at the government level and at the judicial level abusing the very document, right? That mm -hmm. was the people's document, right? They, they've abused it. And once they get into that, uh, uh, on that track, right? Once they get into that avenue of thought, then, and they get away with it, well, they can continue to do like autocratic people and totalitarian organizations do all over the world. You have validated my abuse of the of the charter. You have validated it, and so I can continue to do it. And then it becomes the practice, even though at its root it is unconstitutional. So it goes right back to the people again. And as I mentioned to you just before we came on air, a really good example, again, of how the law uh, has been abused by the judiciary and by the governments in the state of Mississippi in the United States. Uh, Del Beltry's uh, organization, informed consent uh, company that he formed, had his lawyers go to court 
arguing that the people in the, the state of Mississippi for 44 years, their children, if they wanted to go to public school in the state of Mississippi, could not exercise their religious rights and get a religious exemption from having a vaccination to be able to go to school. Everybody had to be vaccinated. That was it. And the court, the highest court in Mississippi just ruled this 44-year policy by the government was wrong and that there is a provision for people who want to exercise their religious uh, convictions to obtain a, an exemption from having to get a vaccination to be able to go to school, public school in, in Mississippi. And, and once again, that's 44 years. It's the same thing in Canada now with our charter rights and freedoms. We have gone down a wrong road as it relates to what the charter rights and freedoms is all about, ignored the first sentence of our charter. So, yeah, for sure. Now, there's three things that I've kind of identified in my mind that are types of abuses. There's the government misusing it, so they just ignore it or, or misrepresent it or misinterpret yeah. it and use it. There's the judicial branch, which right. also isn't applying it properly or misusing it, even yes. with the Oaks test and stuff. And then yes. there's the people who are not demanding it to be used properly. So we really have three different... Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah branches that are responsible for ensuring that it's used correctly, that it seems to be dropping the ball here. Yes. Now, did that basically happen from 82 and on, or did you see a deterioration in the understanding of the charter? Yes, sir. right from almost day one. This, this, uh, the, 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 the powers that be decided to, to use this as they saw fit, and in doing that violated some of the very basic principles under which the charter was defined in the first instance. No, no question about it. As a matter of fact, Right after the, um, the Patriation Agreement was signed in 1981 and became law, uh, Constitution Act 1982, during those months leading from November 81 up through 82, most of the commentators in Canada were not even uh, uh, interpreting what happened on those crucial days and hours in November, uh, the, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, when we finalized the 17 months of negotiations after Trudeau lost in court and relegated what um, Newfoundland, for example, and I had done in helping to forge this deal. They had misinterpreted books out and, and, and articles, even the Canadian Encyclopedia today. Uh, and it was the proposal that my delegation put forward on the night of November 5th, which broke the impasse at that three-day meeting, which allowed the next day for the Patriation Agreement to be signed. It was our proposal. Oh, wow. And so that's how important this is to me. So mm -hmm. we had a crucial role in ensuring that we did get this thing. And it was our proposal presented on the night of November 4th, finalized the next day before all First Ministers that uh, brought about this. My book, in my book uh, uh, that I put out in 2012, Someday the Sun Will Shine and Have Not Will Be No More, which is still available electronically on, on Amazon, by the way, on Kindle. People can still get it. Uh, there, there is um, a, a, quite a, a detailed uh, description of how all of this uh, occurred. Now, as a result of me art starting to fight back on this back in 91, 92, um, uh, there was a professor at the University of Ottawa 
who heard about what I was doing and he was involved in and uh, constitutional law and stuff, he, he started to contact me. And on the day that my book was published, in which I put a lie to what all of the books and authors and writers were saying, how it came about, he acknowledged the role that we play. He investigated it and looked at all the documentation and so on and, and uh, determined that Newfoundland had a critical role to play in the formation of the Constitution because we were on to put forward the initial document that actually led. And the words that are in our document on the night of the 4th of November are very, very, almost the same. Many of the words are exactly the same uh, with some amendments to some of the concepts, but not to the words themselves. And that's in my book. All those documents are copied in my book so people can actually see them. These are the copies of the original documents. I had them right here in my, my desk drawer right now with my signature on them. So, I know what I'm talking about. And so yeah, that, of course. That, that, that changed that. But right after my book came out and, um, and became a bestseller on the Global Mail list for several months in the fall of 2012, guess what? That was 2012, mm -hmm. September the 12th. 2012, my book came out. And today is August the 29th, 2023. Not one person in Canada has challenged anything I said in that book. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck challenging it. And that so could be why. One, one, one way, there's a number of ways you can, when you talked about earlier about, you know, there's a lot of people that fall into the people, right? The parliament, the judiciary, the government, so how they've gone ahead and done things. The other way you do it is by silence. By silence. They don't even acknowledge you exist. Mm -hmm. And this is what's happened to, uh, right, to Dr. Roger Hodgkinson in Alberta, right, and, and, and Dr. Eric Payne in Alberta, right, and Dr. Francis Christian in Saskatchewan and Brian Bridal in Ontario, right, and Dr. Chris Milburn in Nova Scotia and Dr. Charles Hoff in British Columbia, right, and Steve Pellish in British Columbia, they have been silenced. Their considered learning opinion on the science has been completely ignored by the establishment as if they don't exist. So if you and I go outside of our bubble where we, we know the difference and we understand and talk to people uh, who read the news every day and who are allegedly uh, educated, they never heard tell of Brian Bridal. They never heard tell of Dr. Roger Hodges. They never heard tell no. of any of these. They know nothing about Peter McCullough in the United States, right? Or Dr. Yep. Zelensky or the rest of them, right? They know nothing about all of the groups in their Germany or, or England who are arguing and fighting against this. And so the, the, one of the things that the, the powers and that be have done both in the provinces and in the federal government is to talk as if you don't exist. Right. And that's what they've done with me. And when students have tried, both in a high school here in BC and in the university outside of BC, I won't get into the name right now. I've never released the name of the university, but it's not too far from you. Um, <laughs> the students asked for me to come and give these law students mm -hmm. a little talk on the Constitution, given I'm the only First Minister still alive as well as a charter. 
And uh, initially they had uh, support from the professor, but when they finally tried to get to the details, time, date, when, and I, I said, anytime, anywhere, on my tab. I, you don't have to give me anything. I want no honorarium. I want no transportation paid. I want, it's all on me. I, I, want to, I want to do this. The students mm -hmm. were absolutely flabbergasted to learn. When they tried to finalize it, the professor said, I checked. And no, Mr. Peckford was not welcome at this university. Same with the high school in the city that I live in right now. They said, no, they want to talk to you. And so it is right across the country. That's so incredible. And when Jordan Peterson agreed to interview me, in which I announced my legal action against the federal government on the travel ban, okay, and we got a million and a half, two million people watching it within three or four days, after the interview was over and I was communicating back and forth with Mr. Peterson, he said to me, and this will give you an idea the level, right, of how people were able to, uh, the, the powers that be were able to eliminate me and these ideas from the public conversation. He said, why don't you write and put this stuff in the National Post? Okay. And yeah, I they're going to publish you. <laughs> but I have. <laughs> what do you say? What do you mean? Well, he said, I I said, none of these people were publishing. He said, you've got to be kidding. So even Jordan Peterson at that point thought that all I needed to do in order to get some public attention to these arguments that we were all making was to do this. So that's the level to which. And so there are doctors and lawyers all over Canada today who don't, don't even know that someone like myself has been completely cancelled by the elites of this country. Yep. Yeah. And and I looked into it and they cancelled you as soon as you started challenging this particular government. Uh, you exactly. were fine before that. You were being yeah. invited on stuff until you challenged this government. And it's Precisely. because you have such a strong voice. This is exactly why you're being targeted for this. Now, let me just put a tinfoil hat on just a little bit here. So when Trudeau lost in the Supreme Court, is it possible that they just went through the motions more ceremonial than they ever intended to actually honor the document and then basically from that moment on they were not planning to really honor the charter go through the process of creating one but really never to honor it and use the really courts good, and other things it's a really really good point and one is led down you know i hate to go down these roads but you're 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 led down those kinds of roads with everything that's happened since yeah in and hindsight you can say this you know but even before that they were long before the the, the um, pandemic, they were making decisions, both in government and in the courts, that were contrary to the uh, what was in the, um, the Constitution. So, mm -hmm. yeah, one, one can go down that road and make a very credible argument that they had no intention of, uh, of uh, uh, agreeing to it, even though uh, they went along with, uh, with the document at the time. One can make mm -hmm. that argument, no question. Yeah, because maybe like a poor sport type of attitude let's just get this game done because we don't care anyways we're just going to do our yeah. own thing for the next 40 years anyways um exactly. could be why his, his son was in line later to completely initiate and violate it yeah. um yeah. In, in gross yeah. ways really um, but what happened also in the in the in the uh, all the law societies and the law departments and the universities 
there came the, the, the grew up at the same time, and primarily perhaps because they didn't want to uh, go along with what was really in the Constitution. And this is why all the lawyers uh, are on, not on side, and only a few lawyers are on side, is because the what was introduced, and Barbara McLaughlin was perhaps the greatest exponent of this, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, now still involved in law where? In Hong Kong. Oh, wow. Since the communists took over. And there's been um, articles written about why is she still on this court? She was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, believing in the individual rights and freedoms and all the rest of it. Why would she still be participating in any way with the jurisprudence of a, of, a, of a jurisdiction which has been taken over by the Congress? Good question, right? And so, therefore, mm -hmm. that again creates its own theory as to what, what's going on with our Constitution. Right. Right? It really, really does. And so, well, what happened was most of the law societies, law the departments of the universities, started to move towards the theory of the Constitution being interpreted along. The living tree document. And the living tree document says we will move with what we think the people are thinking about abortion, what they're thinking about education, what they're thinking about health, and so on. It doesn't make any difference that it will violate the words that are in the Constitution. Well, this is the living tree interpretation of the document. And this has taken over all of the uh, law departments of all the universities in Canada and many, many of them in the United States. And there was a book written on it, which I always refer to by Judge Bork, who was turned down by the Democratic Congress of the Senate of the United States from being on the Supreme Court of Canada. He had been with Regan as a solicitor general and so on, and had been a, a professor at Yale University and, and a judge, an appellate judge. He was turned down because he was an originalist. He believed in the Constitution as written, as defined, and as worded. And if it's, if it's to be different, then it has to be changed through the amending formula that was available. And so right. what we have is uh, a couple of parallel roads coming together. The, the interpretation of the Constitution taking on a different form by the lawyers at the same time as the elites in the political realm were deciding that, well, we're not really in favor of what we signed on to, and we're going to push it. And of course, they were pushing it in the same way that the lawyers wanted to push it. Correct, which is a progressive way. Um, so let me just let people know what the Living Tree Doctrine is. So I'll just quickly read it to them. In Canadian law, the Living Tree Doctrine is a doctrine of constitutional interpretation that says that a constitution is organic and must be read in a broad and progressive manner as to adapt to the changing times. In other words, it doesn't have roots and it's not it's not anchored they're saying it just grows and it branches and it changes based on the wind and the water and the will of the current uh, society exactly. this is what they taught no this is what they taught us <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah exactly and, and that, that and what's the point of an amending formula there well 100 percent. like why would you need one if it's a living at any one time this is the point it completely defies the whole idea of a constitution being number one permanent and establishing the values of a society so you have something you have a rock on which you're standing rather than a hill of sand right and that to change you have to go through an extremely difficult process but one that's based upon democracy 
Right, so this flies in the face of that clear. I get the majority of people, because right now, under the amending formula that I helped create, the normal um, things in the Constitution, the regular amending formula, is seven provinces out of ten, uh, which at the time that this is being changed represents at least 50% of the population of the nation. That's what has to happen. Right. 50%. Okay. Now what's happening is is that a lot of the that's too difficult to do. That's too hard to do. Sorry about that. That's not what <laughs> we teach in school because something is difficult. I'm going to change it. Right? You can't you know abuse I'm going to abuse it because I can't change it. What a what a what a what a um, what a lesson to teach uh, the society, right? That uh, oh I don't have to do this, I'll just Right, I'll just abuse it, and so that's the beginning of the erosion, right? Right. Of morality. That's the beginning and erosion of of substance, right? And critical thinking, right? And information and knowledge. This is the beginning of the end of of a democratic society when it starts to behave in that manner. Yeah, you just shook my world a little bit. So I went to law school in Ontario to become a paralegal, and I went to the courses there. And the constitutional part of it, where we spent a lot of time, was yeah. on the application of Section 1, uh, the Oaks test, how to validate an Oaks test, and then the case laws that's come since then that applied. So when we were talking at the very beginning here, the purpose of the charter was because we were a case law-driven country for so long, we really needed an anchor and we really needed an understanding. And we just ruined it. <laughs> so we did it in 82, Good and then point. we just continued and to do this, that. This Oaks test is a great diversion. Who created the Oaks test? The courts. A judge, yeah. <laughs> but who created the charter? The people through people. the elected representatives. Yes. <laughs> so once you go down the trail of the Oaks test, you're already admitting that it's the court who decides on changes to the Constitution and not the people. Correct. And from that moment on, we've been accepting that as fact and exactly, something we're just going to do. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, we've got to go back to the first, whereas this constitution. Is, is it any coincidence? Spring. Is it any coincidence we have the Oaks test, which is a tree, and now we have the living tree doctrine? <laughs> to put it out there. <laughs> Maybe that's just the way of the universe telling us it is a living tree doctrine because we're putting the now, Oak test on it. Now, uh, when we began this conversation, which is interesting, I'm glad to be able to express uh, these things out and to uh, uh, know that you uh, have the understanding that you do uh, of the Constitution and having experienced yourself through going to school some of the pitfalls that are yeah. uh, in there, which is really great. And so therefore, you're able to ask questions back, which helps illuminate the whole circumstance and i really appreciate that that's that's really good that very very seldom this happens in the 300 or more interviews that i've done on zoom or Streamyard or something so that's uh one up for my you. pleasure one up you, for you. Uh, we'll be clipping you, that and putting that around the world don't worry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, thank you brian and and then uh, you talked about it earlier and perhaps we should move on to that because i don't want to miss it is why do we need the charter? Because most people keep arguing we had the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the difference between the two? Okay. Why do we have two? This is extremely important. 
John Diefenbaker, a prairie prime minister of Saskatchewan, who was a very individual rights kind of person as a lawyer and fought a lot of cases on behalf of individual people. It was his government that introduced rights and freedoms like we now have in the charter back in 1960. So why do we need a charter in 1981-82? And here is the best example that proves the nature of our country. That Bill of Rights applied simply to federal people living under federal jurisdiction. The provinces live under provincial jurisdiction for a lot of them. Department of Education, Department of Health, all the people who are working for the municipalities, all the people who are involved in things that are provincial were not covered. In other words, it wasn't a Canadian national document. It was a federal federal document. Federal is not national. Federal is simply, right, one level of government. The other levels of government are the provinces. And then yep. the third level of this is the municipalities, which, by the way, are created by the provinces. The mm-hmm. provinces have complete control over municipalities. The mayor of Toronto should remember that. The mayor of Calgary and Edmonton should remember that, that they are creatures, not of the federal government. Of the provincial. Okay, the provincial. So we, after 1960, could pat ourselves on the back that some people in Canada would have these written individual rights and freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, blah, 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 right? But not all Canadians. That's right. And the difference between a piece of legislation in the federal parliament and the Constitution of Canada is that the provinces and the federal government had to agree to a national document. Right. Only the federal government agrees to a federal document. And secondly, which is really just as important, is that any federal government could change the Bill of Rights just in the Parliament of Canada. Can't do that with the Constitution. No. It's got to be government plus seven provinces and their legislatures. And their legislatures. Every seven provinces have to have it passed, not by their cabinet, but by their legislature. And the federal government has to have it passed, not just by their cabinet, but by the Parliament of Canada, including the House of Commons and the Senate. So, huge big difference. One is national, one is federal. And I wish, that's why I want civics in the schools of Canada, is because how many people in Canada have you said to them, what's the difference in Canada between national and federal? Most would say, same thing. Exactly, they would say there's no difference. They're not synonyms. Sorry, totally (laughs) different. We live in a federal state. We live in a federal state where there's some powers in the federal government and the other powers are with the states or provincial governments. Big, big difference. That's why we needed the Charter of Rights and Freedoms so that all Canadians... Under one document. Right. could, Could enjoy the fruits of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of um, uh, press and all the other freedoms that go with it and the right to a fair hearing in the courts, blah, 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 and so on and so So that's why the Charter of Rights and Freedoms are so important. It goes over and beyond the federal government and includes every person in Canada, regardless of where they live and what government they work for.
Correct. And this is why Alberta has its own Bill of Rights and some other provinces have their own Bill of Rights because it's, the national one, the federal one isn't national. Absolutely. 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 Completely consistent with the Constitution. That's the whole idea is that we weren't going to put all the power in one place. It was going to be dispersed. And as it should. Now, yes. I had a question, as it should, because it actually it would be dispersed even further down to the regional level. Um, mm -hmm. But but what I'd like to know now is the amendment formula. You worked on that. There was some contention around it. It was a difficult thing to agree on. Can you kind of tell me what some of the challenges were? Like, some, what were some of the things that people wanted that didn't make it and, and that you had an issue with? Like, what well, were some of the arguments around that? A lot that? of the arguments centered at the beginning, and this is uh, important, uh, wanted unanimity. In order for any change to happen to the Constitution, all the provinces would have to agree in the federal government. Well, over time, of course, it became obvious that um, what um, really drives a, uh, a democracy is a majority government, if you will, you know, majority. And so um, it gradually became uh, a pro uh, most people who had earlier said we have to have all the provinces to agree, plus the federal government and their legislatures that that was too onerous uh, a, a thing to meet. And so uh, we must have, say, a majority. Well, then what would a majority end up being? And so it came down to seven provinces, but at the same time, you had to have at least 50% of the population in, right. those seven, in those seven provinces. Okay. And so that's what the great argument was over. That, that would mean Quebec or Ontario has to be one of them then, right? Yeah. More or less now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be tough to get more than without one of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's happened also, uh, since then, to make this more difficult, this is where the provinces are the biggest culprits. This is uh, something else that never gets talked about, because how are you going to get talked about if you're attacking now not just the federal government and the Trudeau um, uh, myth, but you're now going to talk about the provinces, because the provinces have uh, all allowed themselves over time to take money from the federal government reducing right. their power essentially because you know you don't want to upset the person who's funding you and so we developed this whole idea of have provinces that have not provinces and so on and right. the equalization for it and all that and so right now alberta this day is taking money from the federal government for health, even though health is completely a provincial jurisdiction provincial. under the yep. Constitution and Saskatchewan yep. and British Columbia. And so it's hard now to get seven provinces to go together. Manitoba is still taking equalization, right? Ontario, yep. until just last year, uh, was, has been in and out of that status. It's now had problems again. Quebec is a huge have not problem. Have they not, yeah. Huge amount, not just. Uh, health money, but equalization money, billions of dollars a year. So New Brunswick, PEI, Nova Scotia, uh, and Newfoundland is a head problem right now. Newfoundland doesn't get any equalization. But there's not enough. So if you go and you do the math, you can't get the requisite number of provinces. You might or might not get BC to make any change. Because, you know, the way BC is, I live here, right? You know, I mm -hmm. understand. And then um, um, whether they'll be on side or not is, is open question. Alberta will be, Saskatchewan will be, Manitoba's have no problems. They're not going to argue the change, the formula whereby they're getting these billions of dollars from the federal government. 
through Alberta right. and Saskatchewan all the high provinces. Right? Neither is Quebec, neither is New Brunswick, neither is PEI, neither is Nova Scotia. So you're not going to be able to get the seven problems. And the cause of that is that the provinces have allowed themselves to be, be beholden to the federal government. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's our problem. And until we solve that, so that's why early on I said to you, uh, you know, as much as if there's anybody still alive in Canada who should detest the Trudeau legacy, is your truly because it was Trudeau Sr. who opposed Newfoundland having the same rights to get royalties from offshore oil and gas as the other provinces were getting for their oil and gas on land. Trudeau opposed that. Yep. We took him to court and we lost. He won. And so, it, and he lied about it at the time. And Cretchen lied about it at the time. And Lalonde lied about it at the time. And CBC lied about it at the time. And so, if there's anybody, and, and, I, and I won in the end through Mulroney, when the, I had the Conservatives commit in writing before the election that they would acknowledge and bring in appropriate policies to allow Newfoundland to get the same royalties the same way as Quebec, as Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan, BC and other provinces were getting, which therefore made has made Newfoundland a half problem. And so, okay, so if there's anybody in Canada who should be, you know, Mad, 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 mad to the degree with anybody. It would be my guest today. In power, and it's related to that Trudeau family, should be your son. And I am. But at the same time, I realize that given that we are in the federal state and there are powers at the provincial level, which you and I just talked about for the last several, quite, a, quite a while, that <clears throat> the provinces have certain responsibilities too. And in this case, the provinces have helped erode the Correct. Confederation project. Now, I think I want to blame Alberta a bit for that one because we've been incredibly passive. We, we come up and say things like we're going to be strong, but then we don't. We dropped the ball like right at the, the goal line almost, like just before the yeah. crossing the, the... But Quebec has pushed quite hard. Um, do you think Daniel Smith has what it takes to stand up to this particular government and start fighting back for some of the sovereignty? And if so, what are some of the steps that she can make to get us back to provincial uh, jurisdiction well, versus federal? I, I supported her candidacy for the leadership of the party and very publicly did so mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so on. But she, I don't understand why they signed that health deal. She, she signed that health deal. <clears throat> that was the first indication that and <clears throat> and so th that that was a that was a big mistake uh, her second mistake was the her her inquiry into the pandemic in alberta inquiry into what happened how, how that evolved because she did not involve the legislature the government established it not the legislature and for somebody who was advocating for uh right yep. the rights of yep. people and the rights of parliament then you don't skip legislature for her to have it go and debate it in the legislature. She had a majority, so what's the big deal? Right? Mm. Uh, why why not expose? That's what democracy is all about: healthy debate. That's why we have parliaments. Um, and uh, she also involved at the time Mr. Manning, who uh, I have publicly indicated, and I helped get the other inquiry going, the other national inquiry going, uh, who was already conflicted because uh, he was already 
a spokesman for the National Inquiry and was now taking on a role and taking money from the provincial government. And one of the tenets of the National Inquiry when it was established that we would not be associated with any government. Independent. Right. Be independent. Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. So, so I, I think, um, I think the, there's no question that uh, Daniel Smith, to our credit, is much better than the previous premier and the previous number of premiers. No yeah. question about that. I don't think anybody argues that, and I would never argue that. Uh, but when it comes to sound basic principles of re-establishing confederation so that Alberta really feels part of Saskatchewan and other places, it, it is necessary for you to be in a position where you can effectively argue your point so you'll get other people on side. But BC can say to Alberta, but you're taking the health money that we're taking, and yet it's all on the provincial. By the same token, you don't want all your money on, uh, on, uh, on oil and gas to go to the federal mm -hmm. government or whatever, because it's in the Constitution. Well, if it's in the Constitution for oil and it's in the Constitution for health, why don't you operate the same way uh, under both? And so that, that is a flaw in the argument which helps the federal government and others uh, argue against um, having the kind of federal government and the fine, kind of nation that we really need, right? And that is the provinces being strong in their areas of jurisdiction, mm -hmm. the government being strong in their areas of jurisdiction. And where there's any um, um, gray area, you sit down and try to negotiate and fight hard to ensure that what is done is, uh, for example, on the environment, which is a gray area in the constitution, right? Where the federal government is initiating things which are over the top, right? <clears throat> but how can Alberta then go to New Brunswick or Manitoba or Quebec and get these people on side uh, if, in fact, uh, through one part of the Constitution, which is provincial, I'm taking money from the other part of the Constitution, which is provincial, don't you dare touch it. Well, I, I have a, a cynical way of doing it, and that's to take all transfer payments and redistribute it ourselves to our friendlies. Uh, stop yes. giving it to Quebec. Maybe distribute it to the provinces that want to work yeah. with us. That yes, might be one way forward. There's only one province. It'll only be Alberta, but Saskatchewan is also contributing to equalization. Newfoundland is also mm -hmm. contributing to equalization. BC is also contributing to equalization. And so you couldn't do it constitutionally. No. See, no. this is the point. This is what I bring up <laughs> to people in Alberta all the time. You can't do these things within the constitution huh? and in order to be able to do them and to make the uh, amending formula work you had to have legitimacy and credibility in your own jurisdiction right now none of the provinces have that they have relinquished their credibility right mm -hmm. and power under the uh, constitution by allowing the federal government to participate and contribute financially to areas which are under provincial jurisdiction and therefore reduces your ability and credibility in trying to negotiate change in the constitution to make us all feel more comfortable at being Canadians. Well, one of the things that rocked my world as legally trained was your lawsuit about the travel restrictions. And it was a constitutional, it was a charter challenge, correct? Yes. Um, you're using charter on that. And for the courts to say mootness can stop this that that scared me because what, what do you mean like you stop violating me therefore we can stop arguing whether or not you had the right to violate me that scared me on a legal side that the 
court did that. Uh, first, yeah. take me through your your impression of that and what's happening now. Okay. <clears throat> Myself, uh, Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. Friend of the show, we've had him on. Yes, good man. Yeah, Good man. He's the only leader of any party in Canada that stood up for your and my rights and freedoms to the point of going to jail. Yeah. Because of appearing on a pasture in Manitoba and being arrested because he wasn't following the uh, the, the mandates and so on. He had five too out, many people. Out in a, out in a pat, yeah. Out yeah in he a was allowed 10. He had 15. Put yeah. the cuffs on him. That's what yeah. happened. But he's out in the pasture and the science is, the science is on his side. It's, it's yep. so insane. It's not even funny. So um, at the time when I was made, doing all these speeches and arguing for the uh, Charter Rights and Freedoms, I considered that, you know, you can talk the talk, but you got to walk the walk. So I decided, and the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms were very much on side with this, of, of uh, helping me, assist me in initiating this thing. Uh, Mr. Bernier was, and a number of other Canadians who were on the statement of claim, if you go to the court to see. And so uh, the one of the things in the charter is you're able to move and travel around this country freely, right? Or leave the country, move anywhere in Canada, right? Or leave Canada. Uh, so it was under that charter provision that we argued that the travel mandates that were brought in by the federal government were unconstitutional because they violated that section of the charter. <laughs> and we chose that one because it would be applied all over Canada. That mm -hmm. federal thing right, would be applied all over Canada. And so, therefore, people would immediately be able to affiliate with it, understand it, understand it easily, right? You're no longer allowed to travel. The charter says you are allowed to travel, and you are now there for violating it, and you don't have any good arguments on your side. Uh, and uh, then uh, the Justice Center got Keith Wilson, an outside lawyer, to assist with the lawyers in the Justice Center to argue this case. And it got finally decided uh, last year uh, that by the, and so therefore it went to the Federal Court of Canada. The Federal Court of Canada ruled, as you just said, that, oh, uh, they just uh, cancelled the travel mandate, so therefore this is no longer operative and is nothing to do with the six million Canadians who were unvaccinated whose charter rights were violated for about a year, many right. of whom were trying to go and see dying relatives in Australia or England or wherever. I had, I got a door right full of hundreds of people who've written me and emailed me about their particular circumstances related to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, I had uh, uh, two young ladies whose grandmother was dying in Australia. And they, they called me to ask me, you know, what can they do? Uh, because, and the grandmother had sent them a note saying, the doctors have decided, here's where I am with this condition, and you have very, you know, short period of time to live, and here is the money for you to come to see me before I pass away. There's one good example, okay, what happened. Wow. This apparently has no meaning now because the tra travel ban was no longer in effect, somehow moot. I mean, like you, uh, we are we were astounded by that yeah. kind of decision to be made on that, based on the fact that a government could, as long as they take it out quick enough before it gets to court, and then they've got all these, you know, this is not a precedent to set for the future. Horrible. Horrible. So, we lost. But we appealed it, 
and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a date, and we finally got one. It's on October 11th. Okay. For three hours. Three hours? How are you going to argue in three hours? No joke. Like, you can barely say your name in three hours. Like, well, besides which, um, the other groups, there are two other groups that have their own lawyers. But we decided because we knew that the court hated to have the same arguments coming forward in separate uh, litigations, mm-hmm. so-called taking up the time of the court. So we've combined them in the sense that one. the lawyers will all argue and they'll all be part of the same case. But they each have their chance to argue. Now we have in an appeal where now well, the the different groups, three different groups of, of uh, people arguing this, it's only three three hours for the appeal. Total. Once again, so one hour each. Or exactly, and uh, no time at all. And um, once again, we're arguing that this, and the other thing was, we were arguing something that the courts and judges have argued forever since any time they've decided to make decisions. The public interest. Right. The public interest is involved here, whereby the people need to know from their highest courts whether, in fact, the government of Canada can do such things and inhibit and prevent individual rights and freedoms from being freely exercised in our country, regardless of the time frame. Regardless of how long it was in or whatever, that's not the point. The point is the principle of the matter, the principle of the thing. And you think it would be the courts of anybody who would want to argue the principle of the thing and to ensure that all Canadians knew what their rights were in the future as it relates to this and, and whether, in fact, your travel rights can be so arbitrarily taken away. Because in the court action, as Keith Wilson has said many times, we were able to discover that the Transport Canada and their people who initiated under the government of Canada that travel ban, right, for the for the planes and trains and stuff in Canada, uh, that they had no uh, information saying that the uh, travel in any way uh, helped exacerbate the so-called pandemic. They had exacerbate no or mitigate. They had no idea. They had no idea. So there was no evidence to show. That, that their decision was based on anything rational or credible. And so why they would then rule this way. The other thing was they said, you're taking up the time of the court. They actually said that, the federal judge. What do you mean? This is the whole idea of you being, and you're getting paid for. Right. What do you mean taking up the time of the court? We're talking about the rights of at least 6 million Canadians having their travel rights taken away for almost a year. And this is taking up the time of the court. I got news for you, Your Honor. The other thing, by the way, which you would be very interested in, which you hinted on earlier, Mr. Wilson asked the federal lawyers when it was live in the federal court before the decision came down. Oh, by the way, um, guys, uh, it was in recess or something. One day he decided he would broach the subject to the federal lawyers. Hey, when are you going to carry, uh, you're going to call Mr. Peckford to the state? Because you are doing how you know, and and you know Mr. Peckford's position, and so uh, no doubt you'd like to eviscerate him, get him out of stand, and beat him up, and show show him how wrong he is, right? And that would really, I mean, do you know that what a what a coup you would have of that? So what the, what what are the dates? We have no intention no. of calling us. Never. Nope. In the same way, by the way, the Rule Law Commission, 
Well, my name was put forward to be a, a, a candidate and witness there because it involved. I didn't see you there. So what happened there? When the list came out of the approved witnesses, mm -hmm. I wasn't there, even though no. my name was put forward. And here I was down in Ottawa, right, during the convoy, spoke on behalf of the convoy in front of the Parliament Hill, met with Tamara Leash and her board, had a full meeting with them, had a press conference with Tamara and myself, foreshadowing the Emergencies Act, which we got a tip off was going to come about a few hours later. We we right. anticipated it. I did all of that, walked the streets of Ottawa, and yet somehow I was not uh, really uh, a necessary witness for the Rural Commission to hear from. And, of course, being the last person alive who has a signature on that whole charter that the whole thing was about in the beginning. Uh, so that'll give you an idea. What I, so the court case now, to get back to your original question, is on October the 11th for three hours. That's amazing to me, Brian. That's amazing to me. Now, the POEC, the Public Emergency Commission, we learned pretty quickly that that wasn't what it was supposed to be, which is an inquiry into the government actions. It turned into an inquiry into the protesters' actions. And right. it was really just showing whether or not Rouleau right. thought that it was enough on their side to go right. ahead and not uh, dispute uh, the government's decision. It was right. reversed. It should have been an inquiry that had nothing but people like you on talking about the Constitutional hey, and the hey, Charter exactly. violation. Exactly. But remember, this Emergencies Act was brought in by the Conservatives, of, of whom I was one and support right up till a few years ago. It's the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm -hmm. Initiated this when it was the War Measures Act, they changed it to the Emergencies Act. And in it, they had this fatal flaw that the government could appoint the commissioner right. who was going right. to investigate them. So right. it was a conflict of interest right from the start and therefore was a flawed inquiry because it was a government investigating itself. In the same way as that's what's happening in Alberta. It's a government yep. Yep. examining itself. Okay, the leadership has changed, but it's still the government and the bureaucracy in, uh, uh, investigating itself. Completely wrong, completely flawed, completely without yeah. credibility. And just so sad that our country has gone down this road and so many people to this very day um, think that the rural commission had some kind of semblance of credibility well they had none no we were hoping there's a lot of naive out there first time around first time we saw an inquiry like that for some of us we were hoping it would be right but we saw it pretty quickly that the wrong people were there for sure and I, I put it on my blog when the day was announced i had it on my blog uh, peckfor42.wordpress.com. I get thousands on my blog every day, even today, even today, right now. There's been thousands into my blog since I got up this morning. Uh, from all well, over the world, by the way, 64 different countries around the world. People from 64 different countries participate in my blog every day. And so um, uh, and I put on there other people's views and other articles, plus my own. And when the Rural Commission was announced, and I, I checked the Emergencies Act, which I had done, by the way, when I was down in Ottawa with Keith Wilson, and I pointed out right away, hey, <laughs> this is the government examining itself, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. flawed. This is the very thing that, that a democracy doesn't want, right? the government examining itself. What's that got to do with what? You know, talking about judge and jury, right? I thought the whole idea of democracy was that you had an independent judge, you had an independent jury, 
right? It wasn't appointed by the people, right? <laughs> Who right. were being charged. <laughs> yeah, for, for people to kind of relate this, it would be like the defendant picking the judge and yeah. then saying to the judge, hey, I'm no longer murdering anybody, so it's moot now. Yeah. And the judge says, all right, go ahead, you're gone. Exactly. <laughs> that would be... Why don't we just start using as precedents? All those defense attorneys out there, use moot. If your client is no longer committing the crime, it's yeah. moot now. And who, who appointed Rulo before he was uh, head of the, com the Commission of Inquiry? The federal government. He was a federal mm. government employee being appointed to investigate the federal government. Give me a break. I mean, and we're still putting... I'd love to give you a break, but I don't have that power. But we, actually, we do. We are the people. So this is where it starts here, Brian. Um, yeah. And I think even a podcast like this is a really, really good start because now people are going to have a little bit more information on what the charter's purpose is and how it has been abused. I have stolen a little bit of extra time from you, so I hope yes, you don't mind. Yes, I have. Um, and I'm a good negotiator, so I'm negotiating with you here. Um, can I get a few questions out of you that uh, people yes. have had? And I have, and I have one special guest who has a couple questions for you as well. Okay. She's been waiting patiently. There okay. we go. All right, so Brenda's asking... Is it true that the charter was never codified because Quebec never signed? Is that a thing? No, no. It, 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 Quebec didn't have to sign. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled in September 1981 when they turned down Trudeau that you mm -hmm. had to have a substantial number of provinces. And that's become interpreted to mean a majority. And now or since the, yeah. and now and now since the uh, uh, charter has been in effect in the amending form and usually seven out of, out of ten right and 50 percent of the population so no quebec all the provinces didn't have to sign but pretty good we did pretty good we got nine out of ten and uh, in <laughs> my in my uh, language and if you look up jurisprudence around the world of any constitution democratic country for change if you got 90 percent when i got 90 percent in school i was doing pretty well and so mm -hmm. you know um, quebec did not have to sign in order for it to become legitimate and to, to, to uh, further approach this, I want, and this is one point I did not make clear, it was the Constitution of Canada is the following. The BNA Act, written. Now, the 1982 Act, written. Plus, conventions and precedents which have developed over the years since 1867. Guess what? It was convention that the Supreme Court of Canada used in September 1981 to defeat and make unconstitutional Mr. Trudeau's unilateral action. It was because from 1867 up to 1981, anytime there were major changes which would affect the provinces, involve the provinces in that decision, that was a convention. It's not written in the 1867 Act. So remember, our constitution is what's written and also mm. conventions and precedents which are unwritten, right. which have developed over the years. And so I, I want to make that clear. So when people talk about codification and, and <clears throat> something being written either in England or in Canada, remember, our, our, and now that the 1982 has been used for 40 years by courts all over Canada, it is now a convention that the 1982, right. if you needed to use that argument, it's there to be used. And the other part, Bill of Rights, as I said, the Bill of Rights says in the last section, the last part of the Bill of Rights says, this act applies 
only to federal jurisdiction, not to everybody in Canada. Correct. And this is why Alberta has its own. Yeah. And why other provinces should have their own. Yeah. Um, and then Island Jason has a great question here. Uh, Mr. Peckford, would you consider the wording in Section 1 of the Charter, or would you reconsider the wording in Section 1 of the Charter? Is it being misused? So It is. It is, it is yeah. People come down to it all the time once again. Uh, the question whether I change it is a totally academic question because we can't even get anything, anybody to agree on any changes to the Constitution. So it's not going right. to happen. Okay. No. As long as the provinces take money from the federal government and areas of provincial jurisdiction, you're never going to get seven out of ten. So it becomes completely an academic question and therefore of having no consequential thing on the ground for anybody in Canada. Okay. Uh, of course, can all, nobody's perfect and you can always make changes. However, the Section 1 is being abused because in it, it says that in order for the government to override these individual rights and freedoms, they must demonstrably justify what they're doing, and they must do it within a democratic and free society. On both right. of those, they have failed and have abused the, that section because there has been no demonstrable justification in uh, in the government parlance today and in governance today. That really means: Have you done any kind of cost-benefit analysis to show what you're doing is better? Than doing nothing. Okay? No, right. no government anywhere in Canada. All fourteen governments, the three territorial governments, the ten provincial governments, and the federal government. Nobody in instituting any of these health procedures in the last three years have been able to demonstrate what they were doing was better than not doing anything at all. As a matter of fact, the data is in and has been in since August two thousand and twenty that what they were doing is more harm than good. Correct. Okay? So they have. They have abused those conditions. However, as we said at the beginning of this program, we don't even have to go to Section 1. Because by going to Section 1 and saying, have the government violated, we are accepting that we don't have to use the supremacy of God and the rule of law in our rulings. Right, we just put the government above them. Give the government the option to do that. We just, we just, we just put the government above it. The whole thing is, is that the what has happened over the last three years has been done in violation of the first sentence of our charter whereas this country is founded on the principles of supremacy of god and rule of law and in almost every single decision no reference has been made to that provision under which they're supposed to determine whether in fact this is constitutional or not so first principles Say, yeah, that the violation has occurred. If you want, for argument's sake, in a university setting, in a high school, have a little argument about Section 1, no problem. Because even if you consider that they did uh, follow supremacy of God and rule of law, they still got a problem with demonstrably justified and right. in a free and democratic society. And in demonstrably justified, there's been no study whatsoever to show that the benefits outlast, you know, were greater than the than the than the negatives, and number two, the parliaments have not been involved, and that's what a free and democratic society means. The parliaments gave their power to the public, to the um, cabinet, who gave the power to the public health officer, and the public health officer is a servant of the government, not a servant of the people. So how can you have a free and democratic society when the people making the decisions are not servants of the people? Right. 
And we allowed the oak test, so the judicial added. And the, the oak test again is the same thing, you know. That's yeah. after the fact. The point yeah, we should maybe supremacy. revoke that and stop using it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the oak test has given this us, the citizens, the idea that there is this bar, and if the government uses this oak bar, I'll call it the bar here, yes. then they're good. They're good. And that's that's quite the way of allowing the defendant to come up with a way to give themselves an out when they exactly. decide the out has been reached. Yeah, it, it's trying to, to to do something that the to divert one's attention from the fundamentals principles of the Constitution itself. Correct, and this is where it's been flipped. It's like people this is believe where it's been flipped. There's yeah, the, the basically when, the burden. When you start going down the living tree, um, the, the um, right procedure, anything is possible. And if we don't right, go back, because... to the original intent and the original wording of the Constitution, we're always going to be in trouble. Correct, because this is a document to be used against the crown, not by the crown. Exactly. And, wow, yeah. how we really messed that one up. Uh, we messed that up. Yeah, for sure. They just went and changed defendant to plaintiff, and then we all just accepted it all of a sudden. Um, oops. <laughs> Besi oops. Besides, any so the other point is that you got to make is that uh, by uh, saying we need change to section one, that somehow the courts were going to um, then interpret it properly when we've, we've already shown that they don't interpret it properly. And number two is, is that if they can ignore the supremacy of God, they'll ignore the section one regardless of what the wording is. Mm. Was there an argument on whether or not Section 1 should exist at all? No, it had to exist. It had to, we understood okay. that. We had to exist, but under what conditions should it exist? And by the way, there was a great argument about well, Justify was in there earlier, and it was mm -hmm. myself and Lougheed and, and um, Alan Blakeney, and I suspect Mr. Bennett in, uh, in, uh, and Manitoba too, who argued, Sterling Lyon of Manitoba, who argued demonstrably Justify. We wanted to strengthen right. that. So that it wasn't just the word justified, demonstrate. In other words, you have to go out of your way to justify what you're doing in order to override any of the rights and freedoms. And that's where the challenge came, because what does that mean? There was a formula exactly. or anything and there. I mean, anybody, and nobody's ever argued with me. Nobody's ever argued with me when I argue with, and I have with many, many, many lawyers over the last three years and retired judges. Can you explain to me what demonstrably justified would mean to a government administration? All of them agree that it would have to be something like a cost-benefit analysis. You'd have to do an analysis to see whether what you were initiating right, had more benefits than costs at the end of the day. And, and they all agree with that. No, and I remember, no. when, and the reason, and the reason why I know it so well is that when I was in government, when I was a premier, and a minister or the cabinet decided on a new piece of legislation for whatever reason, might have been in our platform when we ran the last election, whatever, or a new way of doing things, and we could make this better, whatever, uh, and we would eliminate the previous act and start a brand new act or whatever. The first order of business by even the bureaucracy themselves when they had the thing come forward and put their comments in it for the cabinet would be shouldn't we do a cost-benefit analysis here because this has implications a b c and d down the road <laughs> and really you know 
we really don't know whether the whether the benefits are going to outweigh the costs here. We need to get a study done on this, and then we will have you know something established objectively, which demonstrates that this has some validity going forward. So I remember that when I was a minister before I was even premier, this was a normal thing. Gosh Almighty, I was a teacher for for five years, and I remember at staff meetings, at staff meetings at a school, high school level. <laughs> where we were going to do something, right? In school. Right. Well, this, <laughs> this should we really do this? Is really this really beneficial or not? Right? I mean, in your own home, your own budget, you know, should we do this or should we? Can we afford to do this? Can we do this? Right. Is this is a benefit to our kids or not? Well, the, the odd part is. There's a bit of a formula in the Emergencies Act where they needed to get permission from the provinces, talk to the provinces, yes, debate yes, about it. Yes, like there yes. was a bit of a mechanism there for uh, approving it. They skipped it the second time they tried to use it. So when they actually use it in Ottawa, they skipped that whole step. They right. just told the provinces they were moving forward. But yeah, there's yeah. at least an attempt there and some yes. some idea of how we should come yes. together to decide if yes. this is. But that that was another area where the provinces really. Uh, uh, fell down on the job too because it was in there to say that they needed to consult with the provinces and what the provinces should have done at that time right all of the provinces the premiers they let they they dropped the ball instead of saying we object not saying uh, we think there are enough laws in place to handle it it, it ha right. there has been enough law no 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 instead of being passive they should have been active and said we object to you initiating it this is completely unnecessary and we object and we put that in writing right then right. that would have stopped it that would have stopped it if you had five problems yeah. you would have stopped it you would have stopped yeah, it frustrates me that a little bit of political courage and we a really could have turned a backbone for god's sake yeah yep yep Ooh, this frustrates me, but I'm glad we're getting this information out there, Brian. This is great. Um, my next question here for you. I'm sorry. I'm really good at stealing time, so I hope you don't hate me for yeah, this. Okay. And uh, one thing I want to do before uh, I let you go is, would you come back after the October 11th, after those three hours? Sure, Maybe hour four. We'll have you back and see how that goes. Okay. Okay. So we'll plan for that. Uh, Lake 10 asked, uh, when did you see the start and the fall of our once great free nation? Mine was 2015. So we're kind of stepping away from the charter a bit here. But where did when did yeah, you no, see? Yeah, no, no, no. It's, good. it's a really, really good question. I think, I think I realized it in its enormity. I might have realized bits and pieces along the way. We were falling behind economically here, there, and somewhere else. And when I was trying to negotiate the Atlantic Accord, get to give us the royalties on oil and stuff. But I think it really came home to me. When I realized in 1991, uh, there was an article written by two Alberta professors, by the way. I won't get into their names now. Anybody can look it up. It was easily uh, looked up to uh, find. And they published it in the National Post. And it was on the Constitution. And it said, the night of the long knives, who done it? And in that, they tried to demean, well, they did, actually, in their words. Uh, Newfoundland had nothing to do with this, uh, that this was all a big uh, dramatic play that Trudeau was behind and Gretchen was behind and so on, for which there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Um, we were, I was physically present with the other premiers who all agree with what I'm saying uh, and how this happened. 
And then my deputy ministers of Intergovernment Affairs and Justice at the time, one is still alive now, two of them were alive then. They saw the article. And they wrote a letter and then contacted me. I was not in Newfoundland, I was in BC then, and said, Premier, here's what we're doing. You know, did you see that? And I said, I'm furious. I did see it and I've already initiated letters. So they got three letters, these three professors, for which they apologized, by the way. And that's all in my book. That's all in my book. And it was then that I really realized just how far we had gone when you had professors who were supposed to be knowledgeable in political science and, and, and what happened in 1981 to still, after all my letters that I had written from 1982 up to 1991, explaining what really happened, how st all that was still not part of the narrative, that they had still gone with the old narrative. I realized then that we're really, really in trouble as a nation because these, you know, now when I've said to people, I was a great, and I am still in my books right here, a great um, history buff. Okay. okay. Read a lot of history, world history. I first started with the classics, Greeks, Greece and Rome when I went to university. Oh, wow. All I, the way back. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. And I, I read, yeah. I read uh, Socrates stuff every day. I played almost every day. And uh, Socrates and the dialogues on Socrates' defense of his position. And I, in my speeches, I usually start in talking with the charter with Socrates. And then I come up to Cicero. And then come up to Montesquieu and up to Voltaire and so on. And go through the whole history thing. So I'm really into that. But I often ask myself after that happened to me, gosh, was there really a Julius Caesar? Was there really a Socrates? If they can manipulate today in a so-called democracy in the 21st, 20th century, what happened in 1981? What in the hell happened in Caesar's day or in Socrates' day? How much of it is true? How much of it has been manipulated by the forces that wanted a certain story to be told in history? I started to question everything that I had ever read about any place in the world because I saw oh, really? with my own eyes, because I was physically there, how they manipulated and uh, uh, demeaned me and other people who were involved in that process and get away with it. And still on the internet today, you go to the internet today and find out the patriation. And uh, uh, you'll see just how. Uh, how incorrectly it's still being carried in the universities and uh, online and in Mexico to this very day. So, so I think it was in 1991 that it hit me with the full force that um, this country is in deep trouble because they're telling lies like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, and they haven't stopped. In the last few years, we've seen it in spades. Mm -hmm. Very sad. Yeah. Very, very sad. And, and, and do you? put some of that responsibility back to us, the people. Yes, we were manipulated. Yes, we were put under fear and anxiety and a, another type of abuse. And a lot of us are called as a type of domestic abuse when your government abuses you. It's a repetitive abuse and it's hard to escape from. Yeah. Um, and, and you saw that happen in the last few years. Yeah, and when I wrote my letters to the Globe and Mail, National Post and so on over the years about the formulation of the, you know, what happened in 1981 and how they all got it wrong finally ended up in my book in 2012. And like I said to you, to show how, how broken the country is, nobody, not one professor, 
Not one retired judge, not one lawyer, nobody has ever challenged what's in that book. Should we do something like ten thousand dollars to whoever comes up with a valid challenge? Yeah, like Steve try? Kirsch is doing, yeah, like Steve Kirsch is doing with the uh, with the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's really a, uh, it's really an amazing piece of work, isn't it? Uh, to, to, to think, and when I mention that now to some lawyers, they're they're absolutely astounded too. I said, none of your profession, nobody, in, and I, and not only that, I wrote a lot of the the departments of political science and law faculties in the country. As a matter of fact, before my book came out, I actually spoke in Alberta at the University of Alberta to their constitutional section in their in their law department. They have a constitutional section. I was there spoken before Lahey died, by the way, and okay. both Lahey and myself were there. And I, I then indicated I was coming out with a book talking about how everybody got got this wrong, which Lahey agreed with me completely. And in his book that was written about him, Lahey Legacy, they were they talk about the Peckford document. The, the people in the uh, archives in the in, uh, BC, the people who were involved in the patriation. Uh, it's in the archives of Trinity Western University right now. That Mel cool. Smith, who was their constitutional advisor, talked about going to a meeting to deal with the Peckford document. This has all been, uh, this is all recorded. Uh, and, and, and in the correspondence between Lebec and Lahey, that was all recorded. Uh, that will give you an idea the degree to which. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's so difficult for me. Uh, I just turned 81. For so Congratulations. after all this time uh, to to see our country um, and by the way uh, you, most people forget Newfoundland is the only province who by referendum agreed to join confederation it was the people of Newfoundland who decided 51 to 49 in 1949 to join I was 7 years old so I wasn't born a Canadian Right. New I wasn't born a Canadian. My people, my province, decided by democratic means to join. The beautiful and thing then for me to be involved afterwards in an ending and bringing in the Charter Rights and Freedoms of a country in which I was not born and for which, therefore, I fought. You know, like they say, a reformed uh, alcoholic, right? Right. Right. There's more, right? Or a reformed whatever. Well, in my case, it wasn't reformed so much as having not been. And then I remember the kerfuffle at the time. I was seven years old. I didn't know what it was all about in detail, but something momentous was happening. And so for me to sit here today as a full-fledged Canadian seeing what too many people have done to you and me and our nation. Mm. Heartbreaking. Yeah. CJ come has a question of the mate. Help us turn us around. Um, are you optimistic that real Canada will break through this period of mass hysteria? Because clearly there's a hysterical group, but there's still real Canadians out there like you and I. Uh, are we gonna Are we gonna break through this? It's. I'm glad the question has been asked because it needs to be asked, especially at the end of a program like this. And 
I guess up until the court cases started to come in, where they were ignoring the science, where they were ignoring uh, the uh, first sentence to the Constitution, ignoring the supremacy of God. And I'm an optimist by nature. What was it Churchill said? I'm an optimist. There's no use being anything else. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> he, he said that. Um, I am my dad. My family, on both sides of my family, all my, my grandmothers and grandfathers, my four grandparents, all born, by the way, on little islands smaller than Newfoundland Island, around Newfoundland Island. Okay. Okay. All hardworking people from very small beginnings. Uh, and they were all optimistic. And they all fought their way to what they became in their lives. And so I, I'm born out of optimism. Of course, there are, I'm sure, lots of people who would say to grow up and be educated and work and become premier of Newfoundland, you had to be an optimist. The lonely place out in the North Atlantic, um, you know, subsisting for many, many years. Your whole genealogy, your whole gene makeup as a person is molded by all of that. And then your own personal experiences, which I relate in my book. Uh, I have been, but in recent times, I have to be honest and say that the situation is highly problematic right now. Yes, highly problematic. And, and maybe global too. We're fighting a global, and, not just and, and, our, our Canadian government. And the, the democratic project in the Western world is very much in doubt today. Well, look, this was two hours. This is two-thirds of what your appeal time will be. You only get three hours. This is incredible. Exactly. That's how fast this is going to go, and this is how little that time is. I got one more person I'd like to bring in here. She's a close friend of mine, and she's got a great question for you. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to bring Bethan on. Hello, Bethan. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Hi, Hi Mr. Peckford. Hi. There you go. Yeah, I sent Jason a photo. We did meet at the convoy behind the stage with okay. your beautiful wife and something you said to me then, and you know, it's still resonating was that this was going to take about 10 years to resolve. It wasn't, we had that sense during the convoy that this was going to end immediately. And you said a decade, but I am, I do like have a few like questions, but like, I want to know what your, view is on the trajectory of Canada one, three, five years from now. Is this trajectory we are currently on actually sustainable? No, mm. it's not sustainable, the, the trajectory we're on right now. When I said that 10 years to you in Ottawa, I thought for sure uh, the majority of provinces and other um, powerful Canadians would stop that silly Emergencies Act from going ahead, and right. that would show up rule for what he was. I thought that the judges in Canada, especially in the higher courts, like the appeal courts of the provinces, the highest courts in the provinces and then right. the federal court, would see through what was happening as a result of the convoy, that the convoy would be a catalyst for them to uh, change, that there would be some uh, enlightened uh, approaches taken to the law and then what was happening and that didn't occur that, that i was wrong I, I thought for sure 
that we would see these kinds of things happen in the courts and in the provinces, but they just solidified their positions and started to close ranks and to just push a false narrative, uh, which they're able to get away with. So it's not sustainable what we're on right now, totally not sustainable. And for, you know, I understand completely, and I, and people who are listening to me or seeing me right now, I hope they understand that. I was a conservative. I only left the Conservative Party three, three or four years ago. I couldn't get any answers to any questions. They were doing things. And I know how the parties work. I know provincially and federally how the parties work. I know the inside workings of the parties. And I know they think, the majority of Canadians think today that by changing Trudeau, because he's so hated now, and rightly so, and rightly so, that you can do it by changing parties. Sadly, you have to change the system. And the party in waiting, which is likely to be the government, and which I supported for 40 or 50 years, is the same system, perpetrating the same system. Different names, new looks, Trudeau's gone. You know, same way as people want to get rid of Mulroney, Mulroney is gone, and things are going to be different. They're only going to be different, and there's going to be a different name on the Minister of Defense and the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister. Right. The same policies, essentially, essentially, at their core. The same people who are financing and lobbying successfully the conserve the new conservative government, the ones that are lobbying and successful with the liberal government. Here's the example. When I got out of politics, my wife and I established our own little consulting firm. Many, many large corporation lobbying groups were after me. And I agreed to visit with one, and the offers were unbelievable. And they wanted to give me an example the work they were doing. And of course, I was aware uh, that if it was suddenly thought that the conservatives were going to get in power, they'd bring on more former deputy ministers who were deputy ministers with the conservatives. If the liberals were in power, they'll have more people who were deputy ministers, assistant deputy ministers, or somehow tangle up with the liberal party. So all these lobbying groups in Ottawa right now are about their business of rehiring and reshuffling the nature of their businesses so that when the conservatives win they will have ins with the new people in ottawa nothing nothing will essentially change on that score and i went to a meeting with this consulting group to one of their huge big clients and the meeting lasted for 11 o'clock in the morning to about three or four o'clock in the afternoon and I called my wife afterwards and said, we're going to paddle our own canoe. This is nasty. This is wrong. This is the way the game is played. We've seen it in spades before. And I've just seen it with my own eyes again. 
no big boys. We'll mm -hmm. go and do our own thing and we'll survive or fall on the basis of that. And that's how I operate. That's why today I can look you straight in the eye and why people don't want to talk to me in places of power because they know I'm not, I'm only speaking um, without any fear of somebody coming and saying to me tomorrow, but you can't say this anymore, Peckford, because you did this deal with me. You took this money from me. You took that from me. I think I'm one of the few leaders of a provincial or federal party that after my leadership convention, I had my leadership campaign audit financial statements done and released to the public. Good wow. Stuff. <laughs> we'd, love the right. done. <laughs> we'd love to see some numbers well, um, we'd love to see some what a part of my Magna Carta that I talked about earlier one of the first points I want in there is for the federal political parties that are in the House of Commons today to produce audit financial statements annually of their party not just what the Elections Canada asks for now the contributions how is the money spent as well as how it is collected and to be audited annually and i've written both parties all parties on that and nobody's ever gotten back to me of course well not. of course of course not <laughs> now quickly before you go what um elite capture and election interference um when it comes to foreign interference in our government foreign interference in our elections any ideas what we need to do about that? Because as you're you can't, saying, you can't, you can't have you can't have a a government of any kind um, have no inter foreign interference when they won't uh, release uh, out of the financial statements of their own parties. It, that's there you that's go. A fiction in turn. That's an oxymoron, right? In the same way as I've written them all and asked uh, Pierre Polyev and I've asked the leaders to bring in tomorrow when they go in the House of Commons an amendment to the Conflict of Interest Act whereby an MP can't serve in the House if they violated the Conflict of Interest Act. The Prime Minister has violated five times as shown by the Conflict of Interest Commissioner. So if you can have people who break the law are the same people who make the law. They're not going to respect the law. <laughs> they're not going to respect it and therefore there will be ways found. So this business of election interference goes back to the basics of trying to ensure that we have integrity within our parliament and within our government. Now, until we do, by these things being done, nobody can serve in the House of Commons who've broken the law. The political parties got to produce their out of the financial statements every year. The parliament has got to restore its power and take it away from the cabinet. Until these basic things are done, uh, there will not be a body and civics in all the schools so that people know what the hell is going on. We're not going to have uh, the uh, orders of scale, orders of magnitude of, of understanding to be able to stop the governments when they violate. Amazing. Absolutely. We're for sure. So let... Love it. Uh, audit them for sure. Thank you, Jason. And Thank you, Mr. No Peckford. problem. 
and, and let's get the sexualization of children out and the civilization of children in. They need to understand uh, the civil system that we have so we can actually have another generation that knows what the rights that they provided to the government are. And what I'm, not, I'm, we've continued all the I'm not a Democrat, but I completely support Robert Kennedy's first item in his platform, integrity in government. It's sad that in 2023, the leader of a major political party in the United States has to have as his number one uh, objective, if he was successful, to bring back integrity and honesty in government. But that's where it is in Canada. That's where it is in the United States. Both of them are corrupt. Correct. It. And, it's our, and it's our fault. The people need to fix this. We Democracy have to fix has this. failed because if it succeeded, we wouldn't have governments like this. Right. Correct. Right. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, October 12th. Hopefully we'll see there you on you the go. 12th uh, after you're done your 11th. Thank you so much. You want one last comment to Canada and we'll let you go. The, 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 only, the only thing is we won't have a decision right away, but we can talk about how, how what the lawyers said, how they think the experience was. For okay. sure. And then how yeah. the arguments went and we can talk about more of it. There. Yes. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you very much, Brian. You have yourself a great day in BC. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.